You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell and in this episode, we are going to destroy some myths about creativity. Michael Dixon, my guest, credits his creative side with everything he has in life. And he mourns the fact that so many of us, most of us in fact, consider ourselves to lack creativity. Why is that the case? Why is it a problem? And most importantly, how can we find our inner magic? I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michael Dixon. Michael Dixon, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, David. Thrilled to be on it. Now, we're going to talk some really good topics tonight, all about creativity. We're going to talk about recognizing unconventional talent in the people around you. We're going to talk Mm. about transforming yourself into a more vibrant, resilient human being, cultivating the right team dynamics, and investigate how we work our culture so that we're that high-performing creative culture. And that's all really useful stuff. But you make the point in your book really early on that the whole concept around creativity, even the word creativity can bring anxiety to people because they don't feel as though they fit into that. So let's get started with that. And I'd just love to hear you talk a little bit about what creativity is, what it means to you, and even more interesting, what it's meant for you through your life. Beautiful place to start. And you're absolutely right for the vast majority of the population over the age of, let's say, 18. You say creativity and cringe. No, it's not me. The amount of times I've heard someone say, oh, gee, I haven't got a creative bone in my body. You know, and there's that common theme where people just absorb these influences over time and then, and then take on this internal narrative that they don't have the natural creativity or they, that yeah, they can't access it like other people. It's just not who they are. And then they'll go and make unconscious choices in their life to, that will put them in industries or career paths or relationships or geographical locations that actually re- reflect that entirely untrue. Yeah, belief. Yeah, go on, I mean, I don't want to sound, I don't want to pigeonhole them too early, but go and be an accountant. You know, get your house in the two point three kids and live in the suburbs. And the, the astonishing part about that is I do so much work in the finance industry with accountants and whatever else, and you give them 30 minutes into a session, a keynote or an offsite or whatever else, and when, they, when you see the penny drop, they are actually creative, that they're allowed to be, that the, the permission now is to express themselves, and they cut loose. They go wild. Is it like that cliche thing when a couple of accountants go on a big night out because they haven't done it for a while. They just go get loose and get tattoos. 100%. Is is there this pent-up creativity in them that they haven't had an outlet for all these years? Is that what you see in front of you? 100%. And it's it's the way that we've been influenced. So you look at Hollywood, which generally they love. I mean, art in general. I'm a big proponent of the arts and humanities. I think that that's the future of work, despite what our government thinks this week with the way that they're- Yeah. We'll go into that later. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, let's, let's talk about that later because that's been in the news this week, which mm. will give away how far in advance I record my mm. episodes. But the, our, our government has just increased the price of humanities classes. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people, yourself included in your book, 
that the humanities are actually where it's at for us humans mm-hmm. into the not too distant future because we can be replaced in all of these wonderful ways that robots can can things that robots can do but they're not going to be re- able to replace our humanity mm. so it's actually the opposite of where we should be pushing people who are going to be in the workforce for the next 40 years and this answers your first question what does creativity mean to me or what does creativity mean to all of us and why some of us feel you know a knee jerk reaction to it the arts and humanities teach us so much more than, than art and humanity. You know, they teach us critical thinking, complex problem solving, they, ethical, moral questions. They, they teach us history and where is our place in the world in relation to, you know, the 40, 50, 100,000 years of humans habiting this planet. They, they, teach us, they teach us to ask bigger, more beautiful questions, cultural stuff. You know, politics and social sciences, they're so, it, it is so broad. And it all comes back to meaning, you know, like how are we going to make meaning? How are we going to make sense of the world that we're living in? How are we going to find and form new value, which is essentially one key proponent of creativity? If you take that away, what's left is robots, efficiency, productivity, optimization. We've pretty much nailed that. We've got algorithms that can do that better than we'll ever do it. We've got, you know, that stuff, we've got it licked and we're going to continue to improve on that. What we're losing and the danger is, yes, the threat last year was all about AI and robots and stuff that had been coming. Now we've seen pandemic and the way, you know, global supply chains and the way we move and get our food and all this kind of stuff has just been exposed of like, oh, whoa, there's some big questions we need to start asking ourselves around universal basic income, around healthcare, around now we've got Black Lives Matters, you know, this movement that's happening right now. There are so many issues taking place that require a creative solution or a creative question. And I think coming back to originally asking your first question, what does creativity mean to me? It's a highly personal question and answer that everyone has. It's their birthright to figure out and find what that is for them. But me personally, I see it purely as a force of energy. It's just this. It's this impulse to want to make and build and shape and evolve the world around us. And it's our job to harness that and to channel that and to enjoy that and actually just put that to work, you know, whether that's in our career, whether that's in the way that we're navigating a a conversation with our kid, you know, when there's something going on there, oh God, how do I get this across, you know, like with a six-year-old, that's that's all creativity to then, uh, how do I dress in a particular way, you know, at a particular time on a particular day, that's all creativity. So it's really just trying to democratize it and make it accessible and essential for all people all the time. So your ability to have tapped into your creativity and harnessed it and developed it and matured it, what's it given you? What do you look at creativity and thank it for in your life? Such a good question, David. It's given me you. (laughs) I wouldn't be here doing this with you. I wouldn't be in this studio having this conversation prior to going on air about, you know, building cool studios and I wouldn't have made the music that I've made. It wouldn't have taken me around the world. You know, I've circumnavigated the world. I don't even know how many times I've lived in countries all like all over. I bought a bar in Cambodia. I built a guest house and a Mexican restaurant. I, um, I was a nanny for a while in the UK. That was just a split decision. Lived in Liverpool all through South America, Asia, I've, I've a billion different career paths. It's got me into and out of some dangerous, scary, delightful, rich experiences. It's everything, you know, and I think it's actually everything for everyone. I'm really clear on that. It's, it's such a, I feel like it's one of the biggest crimes of 
you know, the modern era, the 20, 20th and 21st centuries that we've had that stolen from us. And, or maybe it's been stolen from us for a while, but, but that we've all adopted this belief that it's only reserved for these naturally gifted few when really it's the thing that's driving us and, and pulling us into these amazing serendipitous chance encounters. That it's, it's, um, it's ideas that fall from the heavens. It's, it's simple, sweet little moments of intimacy between you and the universe that we have access to. And when it's, yeah, it's just such a crime that, that people feel that they can't have access to that. But the thing is, we all have had access to it. And you told the wonderful story in your book about someone who worked for NASA in the JFK man on the moon era, whose yeah. job it was to find the right people to put that team together to get a man on the moon. He needed creative genius. So he developed a test that, that worked out who was a creative genius and who wasn't so they could employ the right people. And then he put his test, once man got to the moon and his, he had to move on in his career, he put his test to another use. Tell us about that and tell us what it means for us and for you in the work that you do. It's a guy called George Land and he devised one of the first ever creativity tests to measure divergent thinking. And I was very successful. We know how that went. We got to the moon in, in 69. Amazing, incredible. And after that, George thought, well, this is quite fascinating. Why don't I try it on a bunch of five-year-olds? So we got 1,500 five-year-old kids, everyday kids with snotty noses and grubby knees, and did the same test that these astrophysicists and engineers and scientists did. And uh, the results came back. 98% of these kids were on par creatively with these geniuses at NASA. That was interesting, he thought. So we checked back in. Mind-blowing. That's you and I. You know, that's, that's everyone listening in on this call. We all have the same creative capacity at five. You look at your kids or anyone's kids at three. It's not hard to – it's so obvious. It's like, oh, yeah, look at them, of course. The way that they do things – I mean, I've got a three-year-old and a two-year-old and they just blow my mind every day in how they manage to not go to bed and still it's nine o'clock and I'm like, how have you managed to do this again? You're genius. me again. But it was such a fascinating test, he thought he'd check back in five years later. Same focus group of kids, same test. The results came back. Only 30% were now creative, equal to NASA. That's interesting. After so then five he checked years. Five after years five of school, years, by the way. Five years the, of school. That's the time you start school. That is exactly correct. Checks back in again. Now they're 15, they're teenagers, they're smoking ciggies behind the gym. You know, they're starting to pash. They're having a good time with their lives. 12% come back creative. So he thinks, well, I'll do one more. It is tragic. And it's just, it speaks to the experience that 95% of the world is having right now. Mm. Well, 98%, because then when he tests us again at 30 years old, only 2% remain at that level. And that he went on to say the research is conclusive. Non-creative behavior is learned. So non-creative behavior is something that we learn. And you do a great job of, of reminding us what our school experience was like in, in the teachers. And there's, there's studies to show that teachers just in one way or another prefer kids who are not creative because they fit into a box. They've learned how we want them to learn at school. They've worked it out. They're following the path. They're following the bouncing ball. It makes the teacher's job much easier when we're not creative. It's a, it's a real shame. And it's amazing to think that once those folks sat down at the end of the 19th century to work out how school would be, that we largely haven't changed that. I mean, we have nice soft mats and we have better play equipment and we're using iPads and, and laptops, but really the structure hasn't changed that much. And the structure 
is designed to kind of squash our creativity and put us into a box and teach us how to think, stop us yeah. from that creative play that I can hear my little guy right now in bed doing. And when yeah. he's doing it, I feel lost. I feel as though I can't contribute because yeah. I can't I can't do it. I, I am not creative in that way. Yeah. Well, you can. I'll challenge you on that. We'll come back to it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll dare you. You know, it's um. there's another woman who did a fascinating study. Uh, it was actually quite a while ago. She studied with, um, oh, it escapes me now, but she found through a lot of the 90s, she did a lot of research in the States and uh, found that even though IQ, t- IQ was going up, our creative capacity was going down. And it, it was early 92 and then she did it again in the early 2000s when it, she came out with this big research. It was creativity crisis, like, whoa, we're in trouble here. And it speaks to decades of, of this kind of stuff happening. And the thing, I think what you, you really get to the heart of it when there's, it's not the teacher's fault. You know, it's just, it's easier to have all the kids sit in rows. Yep. And they're under pressure to deliver. And so it's systemic. You zoom out and go, okay, hang on. So what's the driving motivation here? If we look at it on a systems level, efficiency, productivity, we've got to get all these kids into this classroom. We want to educate them in such a way that they can work, you know, back in the day it was in factories, but then it grew, okay, offices, and now it's design studios or tech firms or whatever it is. But either way, we need to get them in on the conveyor belt, give them the right subjects at the right time, test them, you know, see if there's any issues, any anomalies, get them fixed, accredit them, and then off they go. And that's like what, how we've defined like a, exactly like a product. So it's not teacher's fault per se. It's not anyone's fault. But if the, you were to look at, okay, what's the driving motivation behind that? It's the impact or the residue of the industrial revolution, which was purely about efficiency and productivity. If your intent, if the deeper driving force was, it was influencing the way that you were designing an education system, if it wasn't efficiency, productivity, if it was creativity, you might have class sizes of eight. You might not have year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, year seven. You might have who knows what. You could have people learning in their own, and we've seen this, yeah, and in this, the Steiner schools, you know, Waldorf schools, all these things are experimenting, and there's a lot of research around that, say what you like about them, but a lot of those kids might be slow in the beginning to do their times tables. By the time they hit 14, 15, they just accelerate because their brains haven't been, haven't been distilled and suppressed and, you know, crushed into this one way of thinking. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organisation. All right, now that is all very interesting stuff, but we want to get to the the other side of that where we can actually do something about this as individuals and as leaders in organizations. And I'm going to ask you about those four dot points I started our conversation with. But before we do that, just help us make that link between the sad tale we just told about creativity in individuals as we get older and what it means to be a creative individual in an organization and what it means for an organization to be either creative or not. What's the link between the individual and the organization? Can I go back for one second, David, because you've just reminded me of something and I think it would be an interesting point to make. I read a story yesterday about the Inuit, about uh, you know, the indigenous folks up in northern, you know, North America, Alaska, that region. And it was actually about parenting and kids and so how to how they parent kids and have for many, many years. They don't yell. 
They never raise their voice. In their culture, they see an adult raising their voice or losing their temper as childlike behavior. Mm. So they just, they keep it together. And if a kid does something, so say if a kid's being aggressive, a three-year-old boy, they're learning boundaries, they're fighting, they'll go, okay, cool. They'll let the kid do the thing. And then maybe later when they're calmer or they'll get the kid to hit them. And they'll say, no, hit me. And they'll, as the kid's hitting them, they'll go, oh, 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 I don't like that. That doesn't hurt me. That, that hurts me. Oh, are you my friend? Yeah, you're my friend. Oh, so do you, you wouldn't hurt your friends. Oh, no, I wouldn't hurt my friends. Oh, okay, they're teaching empathy. But they're so patient yeah. and they're so, yeah. they make the time for it. They're not in a hurry because they're not driven by I this had force. had a flood of parental guilt. Thank you. <laughs> you're telling me, man, the only reason I ended up reading this article was because of that because I'm yelling at my kids. But I don't have time because I've got this podcast. I've got to get on. We're all in this hurry to get somewhere. The world we're in doesn't let us stop and be there in any other way. Mm-hmm. So it's not our fault that we don't feel creative or it's not our fault we don't have time for it. And particularly now we're going to talk about organisations. We don't have time to stop and have a meaningful discussion with our colleagues. Yeah. Hey, what's going on for you? Let's just get a coffee. No, because we need that project done. Yeah. And that's got to be out the door by close of business today. So you better suck it up, princess, because we've got to get this, we've got to make the money. And you're right, because amongst many other things, when we find ourselves yelling at our kids and raising our voice at our kids, which by the way, is something that I thought I would never do and, and maybe held <laughs> yeah. off for a couple of years in the life of my first child, but now I, I do it to my oh, shame. God, yeah. Yeah. It, it is, it's the hurry thing. I haven't got time to deal with this properly. I just need you to yeah. stop right now. And I've told you 10 times before, really ineffectively, but I have yeah. told you 10 times before. It's, I guess at the core of it, there are many reasons, but the core is because I haven't got time to do anything differently. Yeah. Sad. It is. And this, <laughs> well, this is, and this speaks to, I think, oh God, it's another whole conversation around time, isn't it? But this is what's happening in organizations as well. I don't have time to think through a more creative solution. I don't have time to take a risk. I don't have time to sit with this question and ponder, maybe we should do something different to last year because shareholders are on us or my boss is on us, or the customer's on us, either way, it's good enough, get it out the door. And that's, you know, it's not to say that we should stop the, what we're doing and we should all sit around and hold hands and braid each other's hair and talk about our dreams, but it's just, this is the tension that we're in. If we don't address these kind of issues, we're going to keep getting the same result. And if you look at the world and what's going on in the world right now, we don't need the same result. We need something different. So if we keep doing the same thing, back, and we certainly don't want to go back to the world the way it was. You know, that's that's a terrifying prospect. Yeah. Well, we can't after this experience that we've had and everything that we've seen so differently. We can't go back to the way things are. But it will be interesting to watch exactly what does go back and what what new things stick around. That is a whole another fascinating topic. All right, now I'm going to keep you on task here, Michael. <laughs> yes, Tell us okay. about organisations so we can get to these these four issues. What's the link between me as an individual and and what I what I am in an organisation, what and what the organisation is for me? Oh, that's a good question. Frame that for me again. Well, I'm I'm really interested in in what happens to us as individuals as we go into an organisation. Am I more or less creative? Am I purely a slave to the environment that I'm stepping into? Mm. Where, where does my identity as a creative individual sit when I'm right. working as part of a team in an organization? Again, this speaks to the influence of the environment because you, I think everyone can, would agree, you get a new role, you're excited about it. The first few days, few weeks, you're meeting new people. 
you're figuring out your calendar. It's, oh, wow, this is exciting. Oh, I didn't know that I've got that down in that room. And oh, and you're having meetings and, and you are ready. You've got these aspirations and this intention to really make a difference. You want to show everyone what you're made of. You want to deliver on the promise you made in that re- interview process. Sure enough, after f- four or five months, six months max, maybe seven, you're in a groove. Now that groove, some of it is good for you, you know, because you can't always be like high cortisol and whoa, new, new, new. But some of it, you're starting to get a little too comfy. And then the systems and processes and the, this is the way we do things here and the business as usual and the best practice starts creeping into you. Particularly if you've come in with a big bag of fresh ideas and you're met with a bunch of people that also once arrived with a big bag of big, big, beautiful ideas. <laughs> further down the path. And they're a little further down the path. And it's just, it's like energy. It's like res- hitting a wall. And you're, you know, this little flower trying to punch through the concrete. You know, we see them when you're walking down the street and it's always, it's, you see that also on like, you know, paintings in the 90s of those inspiring quotes, courage. But it's like, uh, it's hard, man. It's, and it's really hard to retain that, the spirit and the original intent in the face of a heavy, you know, slow, dense machine that Molasses. is a large corporate organization or even a small or small business that's just got well entrenched ideas and you know this has always worked for us i don't see why we need a change mm. it's hard all right well let's do something about it so i'm a leader in an organization and one of the things that that you're suggesting is that for me to develop some skills around recognizing unconventional talent and and to harness that and and to feed it a little bit what am I looking for in that? What is unconventional talent and creative potential as opposed to someone who's just slightly off the rails and mm. doesn't get what we're trying to achieve? <laughs> I think you will uh, get a little woo-woo. I think you feel it. I think there's a whole lot more intuitive sense going on in our day-to-day life than we give credit to, than we trust or we allow. You know, the more brave might say, well, I, got, I really felt something in that meeting. But the rest of us are like, oh, no, I wouldn't bring up feelings at work. So the first thing is I think you feel it. But when you notice people doing, I would say this, they're bending, they're blending, or they're breaking the rules just a little bit. They're personalizing their work and they're humanizing the workplace in a way that just it's a little bit outside of what's expected. That's the stuff where, you know, if you've got a keen eye for this and you're watching out for that, you'll see it. You'll see it in the way they set up their desk. You'll see it in the, what they wear or choose to wear. These could be super introverted, you know, quiet. This is not a gregarious, outgoing, you know, center of attention type of person. We're talking about people that just have a unique way of seeing and sensing the world. And if you start to look for them, you'll notice it. You'll be, wow, they, I, I like the way they do that. Wow, why, why is that? And then I would say that the next thing, you know, once you identify them, the way to nurture that is to double down straight away. Be, just bring a relentless fascination and curiosity to their door. Why do you do that the way you do that? Wow, I love the way that you did that. Tell me more about that. So where'd you get these shoes? Because they look funky. They don't look like you just bought them, you know, on the main street. Where, where do you, oh, well, actually, yeah, no, I ordered them in from Prague. And they're from, <laughs> really? Where? Tell me more about that. You know, like anchoring them in what they're passionate about, in what they do that's not on their job description they'll start to trust, wow, maybe they're interested in seeing those parts of me. Maybe my leader 
oh, maybe this organisation actually wants more of me. Maybe this place is safe enough that I could actually start bringing some of that. And if you make someone feel that they can bring a little more of their personality, mm. they will deliver tenfold. On because those interesting you, shoes are just the tip of the iceberg, aren't they? That's just a little the flag there waving to test the waters. Like you it. know that, and you know um, there's that line, uh, what is it, opinions are like assholes. everyone's got one. The same is true of ideas. And you think about a workplace. You know, you could go around, ask everyone in the workplace, oh, so do you think, what do you think we could do better around here? And maybe 50, 60% of the people say, oh, no, everything's fine. But if you could really make them feel safe after a couple of wines or warm them up in some way, they've got ideas of how to do things better, of what's not working, of where, of a previous role they had or a conversation or an event they went to. No one is a robot. Everyone is thinking about things and they're wanting to work in a place that values them and they're wanting to express themselves. They're wanting to have to feel and find more meaning in what they do and who they are. So having that, like creating a space where it's like, hey, that's what we want from you. Yeah, so anyone can deliver the tasks. I was about to ask you about the jump then from being interested in the shoes, which is important because that sends yep. the signal, hey, I like what you're bringing. I like the cut of your jib. I like that you're a bit different. Yeah. It's okay. You show me more. That's, I, yes. I get the, the power of that. I was about to ask you, how do you then switch that into a work thing and say, all right, now bring that to this task? But I then canceled that question because I think just by extracting that and sending the message, it's okay to be Michael. It's okay to be who you are around here. In fact, I really like it and it fascinates mm. me as your leader. Then mm -hmm. that's the permission to bring it to the task, to bring it to the job that we've got in front of us. 100%. And it's so simple, David. Yeah. It's, it goes like this. Hey, David, what do you think about this? Hey, what do you reckon we could do differently here? Mm. Hey, what are your, what are your ideas on this? Yeah. That's it. Bang. You're in, sure you know, so. Oh me, what do you mean? Oh uh, no, I, I think we're doing, no, come on. What do you think? What have you seen somewhere else? Cause I love the way, you know, you're getting these shoes from wherever. How do they make you feel when they arrive? It's how can we get our people to feel like that? Yeah. What do you think? What do you think? I mean, let's talk about that. That if you're having a conversation with your leader about that, wait a second. So you're telling me you want me to help you or help this company make our customers or colleagues feel like I do when I get my favorite shoes shipped from Prague, mm. I'm in. Yeah. That's a project I want to be part of. Wait, you mean I'm going to get paid to do this? Do you know what I mean? Like that's, and then you got them. And that's, like just, a, that's just a lens. Like if you didn't do that, they would have seen the job as the job presented itself in, the, in a very bland, kind of, well, potentially a very bland kind of way. You're just asking them to look at the job through a different set of eyes, through the lens that you know that they prefer anyway, giving them permission to do that. I love exactly. it. Well, let's make the leap. So that's the individual. So that's, that's just sniffing out a little bit of potential in an individual. How do you create a team environment where that's okay, where that's not just okay, that's actually how we roll and we all bring our personality to stuff. We, we, that's what we expect of each other and we, we actually hold each other to account for bringing our own personal pizzazz to the work that we do. How do you create a team like that? First and foremost, lead from the front, like any, anything in leadership. You can't ask your people to do something and not be demonstrating it daily yourself. So if you're asking people to be courageous enough to share their ideas, courageous enough to take risks, to open up about untested, unpolished, un, you know, proven 
concepts and, and projects, you got to be doing the same. And that means that you should be failing and messing up a lot of things. Of yeah. In front and of your o- team. And owning it and just being like, hey, we took a risk there, but whoa, okay, I got to own that. And what did we learn and all of that kind of stuff. But I think, I think a lot of people talk about that, you know, fail first, fail often. Uh, it's cliche now. But no one really does it. Let's be honest. Like it, they're so afraid of looking incompetent. They're so afraid of looking foolish and they feel as though, why would they trust me? Why would they value or, or look up to me or want to go into bat for me if I look like a fool, if I'm making mistakes all the time? Research tells us the opposite is true every time. There's a great study done, um, you know, Brene Brown. We all know Brene Brown. All her research on shame and vulnerability and all her latest research in leadership and stuff like that, the number one, you know, way to build psychological safety and, and how to build trust in a team is when the leader asks for help when they actually say, hey, David, can you give me a hand with this? Because I have no idea what I'm doing. Instantly, that person's like, oh, sweet. I'd love to help out. Cool. I, I just want to do what I can to support you and serve you. And wow, that there's this implied gratitude and abundance and generosity that comes with putting out your palms and saying, hey, I can't do this on my own or I can't do it at all. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Let's do this together and have fun. You know, I mean, that's, it sounds almost kitsch, but it's, this is the thing. I think that in business and particularly management thinking and leadership thinking, we love to get complex to sound really intelligent. And we love to have Venn diagrams and we love to have these models and blah, 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 blah. You're sitting in a room with your people. And if you just show up and say, hey, should we have a crack at this one? Now we could do what we did last year, but I was having a great conversation with, Tommy about these shoes from Prague and we know that Tina we know that she's got ideas all right you know what let's go there let's be wild let's not blow the budget do the best we can but let's at least just let's have it a crack this year on x project you see them light up and you know at first a few might be resigned and cynical and they might take but that's the thing you know it's not going to happen overnight you've got to do this and then you've got to do it again and you've got to do it again you've got to keep showing up and saying here's another opportunity for you to express yourself in your work I'm going to keep doing it. You know, who's in? God, and the difference is that you've got people giving themselves to a piece of work rather than going through the motions that they've kind of learnt through osmosis of watching other people stumble through a, a similar piece of work. Look, I really like it, and we've taken it from the individual to the team. Let's lift it up to the organisation level. And, and if we're thinking about the, 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 the broad culture of an organisation, how do we do that strategic pivot? that move towards being a creative organization, it, it really does sound like a, a task too grand to take on. Again, it starts at the top and it starts at the bottom. So everyone, it's not going to be, you, I don't think you can do a, I could be proven wrong here, at least I don't think you could do a public creative transformation of your organization. I don't think you could stand at the front of the room and say, we are about to embark on a three-year transformation to become a creative organization because everyone's going to roll their eyes No one's going to be interested, la, 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 la. But if you start lighting lots of little fires and if you get consistent agreement from all of your leadership and then they get it from their leadership and the messaging is just, you know, the frequency and the consistency of that messaging is we want your self-expression. We want your personality. We want your unique, idiosyncratic, one in seven billion self 
to bring your magic to this organization, over time, you're going to see that shift. And then you don't need to, that's when you see organizations that don't, they don't have to have a 487 page document that talks about who they are. You feel it. You walk in there and you're like, man, I want to work here. This place is awesome. What is it about this? You know, and the six star ratings and everyone's on glass door raving about them because, because it's not, it's not a directive. It's a daily habit. It's a, yeah, it's, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's just, Look, I, I, yeah. I, I, I totally get it. And I love the way you describe that, that it's unrealistic for the CEO to stand at a, and you know, at one of the, the big town halls and say, all right, from now on, we're going to be creative. We want you to be creative, paying you to be creative, go do it. That's just going to bring a, a cynical reaction. Mm-hmm. But if you really intelligently light a whole bunch of little fires with mm-hmm. a whole bunch of leaders who are who are on your side, who are early adopters, who are geared this way anyway, mm. and their people are getting this frequency of messaging and this support, mm. this identification about the work that they're doing, it creates its own momentum. And that becomes the thing that is sweeping across the organization. Exactly. It, it sort of is like a virus. It's like it's yes. a little bit like COVID-19. It Everyone is. Everyone is going to catch it, but they actually want that one. You know what? So a few projects I've done that have been this larger scale, we do exactly that. So we'll do, obviously it starts with the leadership team, but then they'll we'll throw an event and it will be, it's a test. It's very wild. It's out there. It's supposed to be, you know, really challenging, but also really rewarding and energizing. Like, wow, that was pretty amazing. And at the end of it, we throw down this invitation. Okay. Who wants more of this? And there's a secret society, you know, it's kind of, it's very, it's a very playful, mysterious way of saying who wants more of this, but it's self-selected. There's a few, t- you know, taps on shoulders of people that where leaders or managers are like, I reckon they'd be up for this. You know, I reckon you'd be up for yeah. this. But then we bring this group together that are, they're aligned, not in their role, not in the tasks they have to deliver. They're aligned in their intent and their intent is to make magic within the organization. Cultivate creativity. Exactly. And so then we'll run a series, I call them a constellation of learning experiences in which they're being trained in how they can cultivate more magic in others. So they can identify, nurture, you know, and liberate the creative spirit in their colleagues. But this is not the people, it's not the high performers. It's not, you know, teacher's pet. It's not the obvious candidates. It's the ones that you know are like, whoa, Teresa, okay, she might have only been at this organization nine months or Betty's been here for 19 years. But geez, when they say something, people listen. You know, it's that kind of an influencer. It's that kind of a, a character that you're like. Intangible. And they love it. And they, their eyes light up whenever there's, you know, a, there's an opportunity to, to make work feel amazing. They're right there. It's like, okay, they are worth so much to an organization because you take them away and they're the heartbeat. And they're so often trampled and they're misunderstood and they're exploited and just not valued in a way that they should be. And I actually think that moving forward, we're going to see a lot of roles that are going to have really funky, cool names like the heartbeat of the organization, or at least that's the tagline underneath it, that are, that's what it means. you know, the soulful, the soulful executive, whatever. And their role is to empathize or their role is to engineer moments of serendipity or their role is to recognize and amplify beauty within a company. 
they keep the bean counters awake at night because <laughs> it's really difficult to measure that. But we're, we're going to have CEOs really soon, if we don't already, who will understand the value of that. As our workforce becomes more automated, the importance of having a heart and soul to keep that all together is going to be so important. Yeah. All right. Last chapter in our conversation, Michael, I'm, I'm going to roll a few questions in together. I, I asked you to hit us with three to five things to finish off with. And we've talked about being a leader and identifying talent in an individual. We've talked about cultivating it in our team and then taking on that task of making it organization-wide. And I've got some really great ideas from what you've said about those things. But we all know that being a leader starts with leading ourselves. So if I want to cultivate true creative ability, if I want to awaken those dormant creative molecules that went to sleep when I was about seven years old, Mm. how do I tap back into that? What are the habits that I can build into my life that are going to make me more creative? Well, first of all, you've got to recognize that creativity is not limited to the arts. That's one of the most pervasive narratives that is holding us back is we think, okay, creative, I don't have time to sit down and work on my watercolor. You know, I've never been good at guitar. You know, what, how is that relevant to the work I'm doing? So we need to just squash that and write a new narrative around creativity is it's finding and point presentation. Yeah, exactly. Dot point. It's finding and forming new value mm. or adding or creating new value. And it, it's particularly, it's your self-expression. So it can be whatever it can be your slide design. It can be, Wear your funky jeans to work. It can be choosing a new route, you know, I got to the airport from the office. Aren't aren't slides a window to the soul? (laughs) They are. I bet you see some bad ones, but every now and then I bet you see some good ones and you go, wow, I want to know who that is. Not because because of what's on the slides, but because they've just shown you like that guy's shoes. There's something about them. They don't want to fit like a machine into this box. Exactly. The second thing to do, you've got to, you've got to make the time for it and it's got to be every day. People used to ask me all the time as a piano player, you know, professionally for many years and I would teach and people would always say, oh, you know, how do I learn? And they'd say, yeah, I tried, you know, I did a bit, but then I kind of fell off the wagon. Okay. How often did you practice? Well, I used to do like half an hour, hour a week or a fortnight. I said, if you did five minutes a day for a year, you would be, you'd be playing light years ahead. But if you do one hour a week, you just don't keep it up. It's like going to the gym. You just don't stick to that routine. It's got to be a daily habit. Five minutes, you know, write a little spoken word piece on your, in the notes on your phone, you know, I was and about to say, what's the best way to, to outlet that? If I want to build this as a habit, you know, determined to go from zero creativity points up to 10, yeah. what are some of the easy habits I can apply that to? Because because I'm, I, I've got this blanket over my creativity right now. I can't even imagine how I would find an outlet for that yeah. if I wanted to follow your advice. And the irony is that you're running a podcast right now, David, oh. which is a pure creative expression. I was kind of exact. I mean, yeah. oh, I'm okay. Yeah. Of course, I'm speaking on behalf of my listeners <laughs> I love here, it. Michael. No, but, <laughs> but I think in, again, it's the journey back to your creativity is an act of creativity. So this is where I think most creative training falls down is that everyone's looking for a hack or a shortcut or a formula or a bulletproof, you know, blueprint. No, tell me what I need to do. Am I supposed to? And I've worked with some very senior executives and and they do that every time. They're like, no, 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 just tell me exactly what I need to do because I think I can squeeze it in between 7.15 and 7.39, you know, on Tuesday afternoon. Okay, cool. So in that time, my advice is find and follow what feels good to you. No, don't be ridiculous. No, no, no. What feels good to you? We've lost touch 
with what moves us. And if you, if you just are starting to open up and tune in, even if you set a reminder on your phone to nudge you every hour on the hour, how are you feeling? You know, when did you feel great? What was the last thing that made you feel something? You're going to notice, shit, you know, I really love the way that words look on a page. Oh, maybe spoken word stuff is my flavor. Or you're really going to notice the, the atmosphere of a room and you're like, you know what, I think I'm quite into design and I like the atmosphere and I like the shaping of vibe or I love throwing a party. Man, I, gotta, I haven't done that in years. I've got to throw a party. You know, it's, it's getting back it? to it's what so feels good. good. Hey, you know, as you were talking, if I was your client then and I had no outlet, I had no way of doing it, what I would have got out of your little little soliloquy then would have, hey, I like a group of powerful words. You know, every now and then someone articulates something in a way that you just go, wow, that is it. That, yeah. is, that is it. You've just said that perfectly. So if I was looking for something to do for five minutes a day, just once a day, I would sit and craft the perfect sentence that articulates an idea as best as I could ever do it. Yeah. That would be my outlet. That's I amazing. That. That's a really nice idea. And you know, the thing to get right after this, and this is, I think, the, the most beautiful gift, is that the more you do it, the more you love it. So everyone's expecting to love it the first time, the first go. If you said to me, Mike, you can never be creative again, I'd be like, well, just take away my last breath because you can't distinguish me from my life from creativity. It's one and the same. The more you do it, like the more it just becomes ever present in your life and then you see that you can, the way I write, I center align my emails, David. You know, I've email. Most people hate it. It's boring. It's this, you know, structured formal thing and everyone just wants to get through it. I love it. Because a central line, it makes me feel like I'm writing a poem. I get replies from CEOs and they're like, I think something's wrong with your email. Uh, you might want to look at that. But then you know what else? <laughs> that's, so, that's such a funny reaction. Isn't it? I, so occasionally I get, I get responses from senior execs and they've right aligned and they've written in color and bold and all this stuff. And I'm like, we're going to do some work together. I infected you. You know what I mean? And they love it and they get it and they have a great time with it. And it's, it's really that simple. Once you get a taste for it, you recognize wow, the whole world is your canvas. And suddenly it's not a little five-minute thing that you do. Suddenly you're bringing it to every single meeting. You're bringing it to, you know, yeah, your slide presentation. You're bringing it to the town halls. You're bringing it to strategy. You're bringing it to finance. How can we get creative with these numbers? You know what I mean? Mate, there's a lot of creative accountants out there. I meant to say that before. Some people make an art of that. I think it's called the Cayman Islands. All right. So now I've interrupted you. You're talking, you're giving us out your three or five, whatever you decide. The first one is to not limit it to the arts. Creativity is not limited yep. to the arts. Number two is to make time. And that's what we were talking about then. We were thinking if you could just do it five minutes a day, find the thing that makes you want to be creative and do it once every day. And you'll follow the on feeling. A roll, yep. And within a period of time, the world will be your canvas. Fantastic. What's number three? And how many are there, by the way? Oh, as like many as we out. want. Yeah. Okay. Let's do they're, they're three. Gold. So let's do, let's, let's, right, Four. let's do three. Okay. We'll do All three right. and a half. Three and a half. Follow What's the feeling. Three? Yeah. Okay. So the first was, um, I've forgotten it already. Not limited to the art. That's right. Second make the time. Make the time. Well, we'd say the three and a half or two and a half is follow the feeling. So right. follow what feels good to you. And honestly, that's, that's got to be more than enough. You know, when you, when you really allow yourself, I promise you, if you really give yourself the time to feel something, it's, you know, that old line when you take one step towards the universe, it takes a hundred towards you. The same is true with creativity. You'll be presented with some serendipitous moment. Something will happen 
that will, it will call to you. You know, there's a chapter in the book towards the end. It's, it's um, when your calling comes calling. And if you're not open and ready for this, you're going to miss it. But if you just, if your eyes are open and you start, just start continually questioning, maybe the way that I see and perceive and relate to creativity is not serving me anymore. Maybe I can expand that. Maybe I can shift the way I'm thinking. Maybe I can be creative after just asking those questions, sitting in that inquiry. The creative universe will take a thousand steps towards you. And the next thing you know, you'll be painting your body, dancing around the campfire. I'll be leading your offsite. <laughs> you'll be wild and, oh my God, I get it. We need to all be on beanbags and have craft beer in the office. And, uh, you know, it'll be just amazing. Suddenly the world will be a better place. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's awesome. Michael Dixon, that is a beautiful way to finish it. I really enjoyed having our conversation tonight. Thank you, David. I've loved it. It's I gotta thank you for the work that you do because you just you pump out so much quality content and you've been doing it for such a long time. It makes a massive difference. And we're all better for it. So thank you for having me on and, and on behalf of all your listeners, like thanks for doing the work you do because you're making us better people. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. That was Michael Dixon, really enjoyed our chat, and I found his passion about the simple pleasure of creativity infectious. Those three tips. Number one, remember that creativity isn't limited to the arts. Number two, make the time. And number three, follow the feeling. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Michael on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.